Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Gazarek and Karen Anthony Cole, authors of A History of Pittsburgh Jazz. Our guests today are Richard Gazarek and Karen Anthony Cole, and they are the authors of this book, A History of Pittsburgh Jazz. Uh, Richard, we'll start with you. Well, why'd you write the book? Well, Brian, I've always liked jazz, and I uh, once just decided to do a little research into the history of jazz in Pittsburgh, just for my own interest. And when I saw the depth of talent that came out of this city over the decades, I was amazed. And then I saw a film by the Manchester Craftsman's Guild called The Greatest Story Never Told, We Knew What We Had. It was about history of jazz. And I wanted, I thought there'd be a book there. And there was, but I'm not musical. I don't play an instrument. I can't read music. I can't sing. I can't even whistle. But fortunately, my neighbor across the street, Karen Anthony Cole, is an accomplished musician. So a year or two ago, I walked, I saw her and I said, Karen, do you have any interest in doing a book on jazz? And she immediately said yes. And we were off to the races. Karen, what was the experience like putting the book together? Well, I was a teacher. I taught high school. And one of the things that I taught there was the history of jazz. And when I put that curriculum together, I tried to find some information about Pittsburgh jazz, and it was very difficult to find. So when Rich asked me, I said, yes, 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 I want to do it. Um, I also was surprised at the volume and the depth of talent, the number of people involved in jazz here, the number of people who attended jazz functions. Uh, I, I was shocked. I've lived here my whole life, and I was totally unaware. What is the era you're talking about? What were the years uh, covered by your book? Well, this would have started uh, the turn of the century, uh, right through the uh, late 50s, early 60s, when the uh, Pittsburgh Renaissance began. And that's that brought about the decline of jazz in Pittsburgh, unfortunately. But it talks about some of the early black musicians in town who were classically trained. And then they taught others, and this this whole movement of jazz developed with the Great Migration, the Great Black Migration from the South. So you had all these people coming up from the South, these different forms of music and things like that, and it all kind of blended together, and jazz jazz just seemed to, to take hold here. Was there something special about Pittsburgh? I mean, was it, was it unique? Was it as a hotbed of jazz, or was this going on all over the country? Well, it was... It was going all over the country in places like St. Louis and down in Mississippi and Chicago and New York, but Pittsburgh's his, his, his history has been widely overlooked by music historians. There were so many people coming out of Pittsburgh who were who were great musicians and, and black and white. And I, I break that down into two categories. Number one, you had the number of musicians who became famous, I mean, really famous, but then you had equally talented musicians who ne didn't necessarily become famous, but they played for some of the greatest jazz bands in the country. And they weren't well known, but they, they played for Basie and Glenn Miller and uh, Duke Ellington and 
just tons of these guys were out there. Are there a lot, a lot of recordings of these people, the Pittsburgh jazz musicians? Oh, yes, yes, there are. Uh, first of all, there's the albums that, the, that these musicians made. I mean, you had men like George Benson, uh, Mary Lou Williams, Billy Eckstein, Earl Gardner, Earl Father Hines, Dodo Marmarosa. Uh, all these people recorded and I think a lot of that's a lot of that's early stuff was lost, but there's much more contemporary stuff that, that people can listen to. And uh, Karen, you're you are or were a high school teacher, you said? Correct. Correct. And you taught the history of jazz? Correct. Were high school kids interested in the history of jazz? Yes, extremely. I also had a jazz band, an audition only jazz band, and um, it was full. It was it was a full house. Um, kids were very interested in jazz. They were interested in the genres of jazz. They were interested in where it came from. Um, they were particularly interested in the black history of jazz. So it was, it was a very good experience for me and for them, I think. Now you're right in the book and, and uh, Richard, you mentioned the great migration. How, how did that affect jazz in Pittsburgh? I mean, did, 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 were there a lot of Pittsburgh born jazz musicians or were they kind of imports? A lot of them were imports. There are a number, we mentioned in the book, and a lot of these musicians, for example, whose parents played instruments in the South, came North, they taught their children how to play, or in many cases, their children taught themselves to play, were really talented. So that was a, it was a mixture. Now there was a, a band leader, Fate Marble, who uh, has been forgotten by a lot of jazz historians, but he was crucial to bringing some of the music here. Uh, he was a leader of a bay jazz band on a riverboat, the Steckfuss Lines. And they would come up every year from the south and make a swing north and then west and then back east to Pittsburgh. And people knew as soon as they heard the Calliope playing on the steamboat on the Ohio River, they knew that spring was here and fate marble was here. And a lot of people uh, came to listen to the music and a lot of the musicians uh, came to play. For instance, I think it was uh, Earl Father Hines was 14 years old. He was playing with Fate Marble on the uh, on the boat. And uh, Fate Marble stayed in Pittsburgh for a lot of times uh, for the years. His family stayed here. He would go into the clubs in the Hill District and he would talk about the music and teach people different techniques. So he was a great source of, uh, of, of learning for future jazz musicians. And he was also considered the founder of the Pittsburgh School of Piano, if you look at some of the people that he influenced. I mean, Pittsburgh has got a ton of piano players. And I'm, I didn't mention Ahmad Jamal, for example, or and I mentioned Earl Hines and Earl Gardner and Dodo Marmorosa, Mary Lou Williams. So they were all, uh, all just terrific, just terrific artists. Now, you mentioned the clubs. If somebody wanted to hear this music, what, what, what kind of clubs would they go to? Describe the scene. Oh, well, <laughs> there was the Crawford Girl Number 2. It was one of the most popular jet uh, joints in the entire country. Local musicians played there, and then traveling musicians who were playing a gig in Pittsburgh. As soon as their gig was over, they'd rush up there to play because 
it attracted some of the best musicians and they would have jam sessions between out-of-towners and the local guys, the local uh, musicians. They would try to outplay each other. There was also a place called the Musicians Club. It was uh, part of Local 471. This was the Black Union. And they had some terrific, terrific people came there to jam and to play. And then you had places like uh, uh, the Zebra Lounge and you had uh, Bernie Dunlap's place. Uh, where everybody attended, but it was really the Crawford Grill was the magnet uh, that attracted musicians. We talked a little <clears> bit <throat> about Mr. Crawford. He he was a, has shown up in a couple of books about Pittsburgh. The owner of the Crawford. Oh, God, Grill. His name was he called it the Crawford Grill, but it was Gus Greenlee who was the ah. owner. He was the promoter. Yeah, we talked about him before. He he supposedly legend has it that he had introduced the numbers racket into Pittsburgh in 1926. That's a question that. You know, it may be legend, it may be true. Nobody knows exactly for sure. But he was also uh, a owner of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the baseball team in the American Negro Leagues. And he also was a, a, a boxing promoter and he was a, a jazz promoter. And seems like everybody in the jazz world came to see Gus. As a matter of fact, there's a story where uh, Gus Greenlee was meeting in his private room with Duke Ellington when an uh, a relative of uh, Gus's came in and said, hey, I got this young kid you got to listen to. And Duke says, okay, we'll bring him down to the uh, Warner Theater tomorrow and we'll talk to him after one of my performances. And this young man goes down and he plays some stuff, plays some music and arrangements for Duke. And Duke hires him on the spot. And for the next 30 some years, Billy Strayhorn and Duke Ellington were a pair. And they turned out some magnificent music. To further, further answer some questions about to further answer some questions about the clubs, uh, when we were working on the book, I put on a on a database all the clubs that came up anywhere we saw them, anywhere in the research that we saw them, and I have 110 clubs on the database. So, and and most of those um, were in the downtown area. Uh, the Hill District had m multiple many clubs, and then of course East Liberty had a lot of clubs. That, that served the before, the before hours and also the after hours um, attendees. So can you describe the scene, Karen, if you walked in the door, what you had seen, what would it have looked like? What would it have sounded like? What it would have smelled like? Smoky. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the descriptions were smoky, noisy. Um, some of them were private after hours clubs. They charged $25 a year for a membership. So um, it could be called private. Um, during Prohibition, many of those were raided by the local police because they were serving alcohol and, they, of course, it was illegal. Um, some of them were very small. Some of them were quite large. Um, there were theaters, there were clubs under the theaters. So upstairs was a theater, downstairs was a club. And the after hours clubs particularly were very busy. And those were the clubs that's, that basically opened around midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And they stayed open until five or six in the morning. So these musicians played somewhere their primary gig and then went to the after hours clubs and played again. There was a lot of um, intermingling, I guess I'd say, of the musicians. They, they learned from each other. They encouraged each, encouraged each other. Uh, they tried to outdo each other in many cases. Were there white clubs and black clubs or were they uh, integrated? Um, well, the Hill District sort of led the way in terms of some integration. Um, 
the downtown clubs, of course, in the 40s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, the black musicians did not play the downtown clubs. They're, the black people and black musicians mostly attended in the Hill District and played in the Hill District. But as, as um, the civil rights movement moved forward, there was integration and, and white um, people did attend the, the black clubs that were housed in the Hill District. Richard, you mentioned that there was a black union. Was there a black players musicians union and a white musicians union? Yes, uh, black union was local 471 of the American Federation of Musicians. And the white union was local 60, I believe. And um, this is a very big bone of contention in those days. The white musicians frequently came to the black musicians club to play, they were welcome. Unfortunately, the black musicians were not welcome in the white musicians club. When Karen and I interviewed some of the black musicians that are still alive and looked at some of these oral histories, there was a lot of bitterness on the part of these black musicians. But when we interviewed some of the white guys, they said, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bitter. We all got along. Well, they may have got along in a musical sense, but there was all always that sense that the black musicians were treated as second-class citizens, and they really were, because when the two unions merged, they were forced to merge by civil rights legislation, and these dual clubs across the country had to become one. So when the black musicians joined the white musicians' union, all their membership cards were lost. These men that had been paying dues for decades all of a sudden they didn't have any benefits because they couldn't find them. And a lot of these black musicians believed that it was destroyed on purpose. So, and then there was also a problem of how to get black musicians elected as officers. So there was that problem. And uh, that went on for a while. These clubs, were they, were they legal? Were they doing things, everything above board or were there, there speakeasies or uh, serving drinks during prohibition? Some were quite above the board, um, but some were not. And I, I don't know the percentage of each. Uh, I'm currently researching the clubs, so uh, I'm finding out a lot of things about the clubs. Um, there were clubs in East Liberty that were owned um, by people who were legitimate businessmen who and women who you know paid their taxes, did what they were supposed to do. Uh, followed the rules, followed the law. Then there were many smaller clubs that just disregarded the law. And some of the, like the Bachelors Club in East Liberty was attended, um, the members were mostly the upper crust of Pittsburgh. So they were the judges, lawyers, uh, the police. We heard a story about a police chief coming there. Uh, so I, I, I can't really answer that question other than it was 50-50. Some were above board and some were not. Well, Karen, didn't you also find something about a booking, a booking sheet of all the engagements and the number of people that on any given night would attend a jazz? Event? Yeah, uh, Carnegie Library, they have a bookings book and you can actually look at the bookings for um, who was in town and where they were playing. And it, they estimated that there were 35,000 people a day attending live concerts of some kind, a day. Could the I found astounding. Could the musicians make a living at this? No. <laughs> they all had to have, even today they can't, unless they're really famous. 
No, in those days, uh, they often didn't get treated by the club and the promoters and the club owners. Uh, they never got their full union scale. They had to take what they were given, despite being in a union. And uh, it was tough because, and a lot of these men had to have other jobs, had to have a primary job working somewhere, and jazz became a secondary source of income. So yes, it was very difficult, very, very difficult for them to earn a living. Uh, Karen, I want to get back to the clubs. Again, if you walked in the door and, and saw a club, were they were they fancy or were they basic? Were they clean? Were they dirty? Were the people dancing? What, what was it like? There was a lot of dancing in Pittsburgh. Um, some places had a separate area towards the back where the band played and there was dancing. Of course, there was always a bar. Um, many of the clubs had what we would now call booths along the side, and, and people sat in those booths and drank and, and ate. Um, the dancing was a big attraction. There were, there were numerous places in Pittsburgh where there were very large dance floors, both in the city and then in the surrounding area. Westview Park had a dance floor that was like an acre, and they, and they put a hardwood floor down on it, and then later on they air-conditioned it. So it became one of the hotspots for dancing. Um, inside the city, there were many dance areas where people went seven nights a week to dance. And of course, the music was live because there wasn't a recorded music at that point. So um, in these clubs, when you came through the door, we, we I read some descriptions. They were um, not particularly clean, but very smoky, um, noisy. There was the band playing somewhere. Uh, people were talking and laughing. Um, I, I think generally it's just what we can imagine from the 40s uh, in terms of going to a club. Some of them were larger, so of course it was spread out more in terms of square footage, but but it was noisy and, and very smoky because everyone smoked. Now, Richard said the musicians didn't make any money. Did, did the owners of the clubs make money? I think some of them did make money. Um, some of the more upscale clubs, they made money. They A lot of them closed in the 50s, 60s, and 70s because as recorded music came along, the attendance of, of people listening to live music dropped. And of course, once that dropped, their revenues dropped. So then they, they closed. But I, I haven't gotten into the point of learning whether they made money or not. Some of the people owned multiple clubs. They owned a little one here that was an after hours club and then a, a larger club where they had did before hours. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how much money they made. Were there festivals, like outdoor festivals, or was it all pretty much confined to the clubs? It was pretty much all confined to the clubs. The jazz festivals didn't, that's more of a modern, uh, a modern event. Um, it was just the fact that there were so many clubs and you had your choice. That was one of the guys we talked to said, you know, that was the problem. Who do you want to hear tonight? Who do you want to jam with? Because there were so many places. There was even... And this is one thing that surprised me. We're outside of Pittsburgh, down in Manesson in Westmoreland County. There was a place called the Arch Tavern. Now, this is a gritty mill town that was known for making steel. And yet the Arch Tavern attracted some of the major jazz stars. And I'm talking like Count Basie and Duke Ellington and people like that. They came down to play in Manesson, of all places. That's how widespread this was. David McCullough, in an interview that he gave to the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, you know, he's from Pittsburgh. He used to go to these jazz places all the time. He says it was marvelous to see these things. As you had steel workers who, after sweating in a mill for a hole, they just wanted to go out, have a beer, 
dance with their girlfriends and listen to jazz and relax on the weekends. And that's what why it was so popular. It was just a great way to unwind. I have to read to you, uh, in your book, you write, um, the cabarets caught the attention of public safety officials who were concerned about the relationships between black and white people. In 1926, Pittsburgh passed a law regulating cabarets, requiring owners to obtain a dance license before three or more people could dance. But the real aim was racial. And you're right, the Pittsburgh Post led a crusade against race mixing, claiming that white teenagers drank, teenage girls drank and danced with black men. In the resorts, young white girls operate openly with Negroes, reported the Post in 1925. So, uh, so there was some mixing and it didn't go well with the parents, huh? No, and that's funny because when Karen was talking a little bit ago about the white people coming to the Hill District, they called those black and tan clubs. And the whites were welcome there. But when these other places uh, opened, these cabarets and cafes and the, and the seedier joints, that really became a racial issue. White people did not want their daughters dancing with black men. And the police took it upon themselves to be the moral authority and tried to enforce that. And it was a sense segregation. One of the things that we found, there was a phrase that black migrants used. They were going up south, which means that they were leaving the south to escape Jim Crow and coming to Pittsburgh, which had Jim Crow laws, unofficial Jim Crow laws. And the fact that they didn't want black men and white girls together was one of those aspects of going up south. And uh, it was quite a time. When people migrated from the South to Pittsburgh, what, what did they find when they got there? I mean, why would they have gone to Pittsburgh and, and were there jobs available for them? There were jobs available, but you couldn't mix with white people. You could get a job, but you and you, you couldn't live in a white neighborhood. You had to live in a rooming house somewhere or in a shack somewhere. You uh, could, uh, for instance, work in a restaurant, but you couldn't eat there if you were black. That was the kinds of things that they had experienced in the South. And they came to Pittsburgh and they experienced the same thing. And that's why they refer to it as going up South. Very little had changed. Yes, there were some more freedoms, but there was discrimination for a long, long time. And I think that came probably to a point uh, when Pittsburgh Renaissance began in the late 50s. Were there a lot of police raids? Oh, yeah. There were a lot of these places. Uh, there were some real city places like the Cafe Paris in the South Side that was subject to raids because it had uh, mixed races. And it wasn't in the Hill District. That was like the South Side of Pittsburgh. So that was predominantly a white white section. And so, yeah, there was there were police raids and uh, uh, men were locked up on, you know, very questionable charges a lot. I want to ask about something else in your book. You're right about uh, East Liberty had been controlled by the mafia for decades, according to a 1990 investigation by the Pennsylvania Crime Commission. Ironically, it was the mob in East Liberty that kept jazz alive because they controlled places like the Bachelors Club, the Del Moro Canoe Club, the Bocce Club, and the Policeman's Club, where jazz musicians performed. The Policeman's Club, kind of ironic being a mob controlled. <laughs> but you also mentioned the Executive Lounge, which is owned by mobster Anthony Nini the Torch Lagatuta. Now there's a mob name for you, Nini the oh, Torch. <laughs> the reputation of Nini, they said Nini could make cement burn. 
That's how good an arsonist he was. We talked to this pianist who's still alive in his 90s, Frank Cunamundo, played there. He played at the, uh, one of the places that he played at was the Genovese Cocktail Lounge, which was owned by Mike Genovese, who later became head of the mafia in Pittsburgh. And the East Liberty was the base of the mafia's operation. First, it was John LaRocca. Then it, when he died, Mike Genovese took over. And uh, Frank would tell us stories about all these. They treated him very nicely, but he says he knew they were in the rackets. So he had to, he had to watch, watch what he said and watch what he did. But then when he went to work for Ninny, who incidentally had beat a lawyer to death in his bar <laughs> and went to prison for that. He said, and then he bought him this $100,000 grand piano. And unfortunately, the executive lounge burned down one day. <laughs> and when the arson detectives came to investigate, they said, Ninny, where's your $100,000 grand piano? And he says, it's out for a tune-up. Well, everybody knew he didn't take it out for a tune-up. The tuner came there to the club, and they were very suspicious about how, why his, how and why his club burned down that time. But uh, Frank's, Frank was regaling with some of the stories and the women that he ran around with in these clubs, and uh, I, he, I asked him about it. He said, Rich, he says, that's why I've been married three times. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you about something else here. You have... Father James Cox, a Catholic priest in Pittsburgh's Strip District, blamed the music for a decline in morality and making women and men more promiscuous. Modern jazz from the beginning to the end may be summed up as jazz, 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 a perfect example of discord in a discordant age. And also, you're right, in 1921, the Ladies' Home Journal claimed that jazz caused people to sin and destroy brain cells, making it impossible for listeners to judge right from wrong and stimulated half crazed barbarians to the vilest deeds. Now, did any of your research turn up jazz turning people into uh, to cause the vilest deeds? Well, <laughs> there was one story where a young woman, and it wasn't local, it was in California. She claimed she killed her mother because she was under the influence of jazz. And when people, when jazz first started to become popular, every, every doctor and psychiatrist had to weigh in on problem and one doctor said you know what would really cure jazz is a good eight hours sleep every night and three square meals a day and other was would said well if you're going to play a couple jazz songs uh, for every three jazz songs you should play one proper song to offset the thing i mean they had all these crazy crazy theories of, and it was only the, it was just music it was just good music but everybody hated it you mentioned mm -hmm. father cox Father Cox was pretty much a prude, and he was very old school, so he did not like and understand the music. Uh, and he hated the dances, like the flapper and the black bottom. He, those are part of the jazz age, and so, of course, he was down on those. But it just wasn't Father Cox. It was a lot of Protestant ministers, too, who also railed against uh, the music. But it continued to spread, and then when radio became more popular, uh, forget about it, jazz Jazz was out the door, and everybody everybody was listening to it. Were there Pittsburgh radio stations that featured jazz? Uh, in those days, yeah, they played some. Uh, as the number of stations in Pittsburgh grew, they played more. Uh, we had, up until a few years ago, uh, Duquesne University had played jazz 24 hours a day, WDUQ. Then it got sold. They stopped playing jazz. It's all talk radio now. We have WZUM in Braddock, which is outside Pittsburgh. That's the only jazz station left in Pittsburgh. That's the only place where you can hear jazz all the time. 
Did the newspapers write about it? Were there reviews of performances and things like that? Yeah, there was quite a bit. They reviewed it all the time, and, and the, the reviews varied. Some, you know, said it was great music. Uh, others just railed against it. You know, you kind of had a mixture there for a while. Now, Karen, you, you mentioned at the start that you were a jazz fan. When did you get interested in jazz? Well, I have a music ed degree, and when I was preparing for my music ed degree, I played in a jazz band, and that was the first time that I became a super fan. Um, over the years of my teaching career, I always had a jazz band, and I noticed that it was kind of a recruiting tool to get kids interested in playing other kinds of music. So kids really did want to learn about jazz. They knew about it. They knew what it was, but they but to play it, of course, is a whole different level. But um, I became interested in jazz very early in my life. I've listened to jazz my whole life. I've taught jazz. Um, I think it is truly America's music. I think it is a way of showing our full heritage that we had immigrants from all over the world come here and brought the, their flavors of music and that got absorbed into the stew of jazz, um, particularly black music, but others as well. There are themes, if you listen to jazz the way I do, you, you hear themes that are Romanian, you hear Jewish music influxed, you hear all kinds of things, Russian. And that part, I think, is what interests students. They're interested in finding out that it came from everywhere. And here it is, and it is America's music. It was born here, it was bred here, it was grown here. And in some ways, after we had our jazz craze in the 30s and 40s and into the 50s, it went to Europe, and then Europe caught the jazz virus. And many of the musicians toured Europe after the tours started to dry up in the United States. But, but students really were interested in where it came from, what it is, what the notation looks like, what the feel of it is. And jazz has, is a music that has a particular feel to it. And I think that's what attracted students. That's certainly what attracted me. So, well, we haven't really talked much about the music. You know, we talked about walking in the door and what it would have looked like and felt like. But what what was the music that people would have heard? What 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 were the instruments and what did the music sound like? Well, the piano. Pittsburgh was a very heavy piano piano heavy town. There were lots of pianos in Pittsburgh. There were multiple music stores and music suppliers that supplied pianos. And at that time. Um, many households had a piano because that's what provided music. And uh, the parents of, of many of the famous jazz musicians were piano players either in the church or just for themselves. And they had their kids at their feet and their kids started to play and were very interested. So piano was a huge part of Pittsburgh's jazz scene. Huge. You know, Billy Strayhorn and many, many piano players. Um, we had instrumentation including trumpets, trombones, uh, guitars, of course, drummers, drum set players, pianists, bass players. Pittsburgh has a lot of famous bass players, um, saxophone, clarinet. And of course, we had vocalists. We had very good vocalists here. Now, one of the reasons that, that musicians did so well here is there were a lot of musicians, and so they taught one another. But the other thing was Pittsburgh City Schools adopted a music curriculum very early they were the first school district in Pennsylvania and the fifth in the country to adopt a music curriculum in the schools. And it was required. 
And it wasn't superfluous. It was, they, they studied music theory, they studied conducting, they studied arranging. And we had some city schools that, that were basically music factories, Westinghouse cranked out many musicians that we rec that were recognized internationally. You mentioned this, so, this gentleman, Carl McVicker from Westinghouse High School. Carl McVicker was, he was a person who recruited students through his jazz band. He had a fabulous dance band that did basically swing music. And so he recruited kids into his other ensembles by recruiting them through this fabulous, exciting jazz band. So, uh, and, and Carl McVicker was a person who really demanded, he was a very tough taskmaster. Um, he wanted students to be able to read music, to have good tonal memory, all the things that we want in our music students. And, and the, the better students, of course, were attracted to that because it was high quality. So he, he, really, he really manufactured students, not just jazz students. He also manufactured symphony students, symphonic students. Um, he also manufactured kids that were just, just plain good at it and didn't go on in music, but it helped their academics. There's also a Pittsburgh Musical Instrument Institute you wrote about? Yes, PMI, Pittsburgh Music Institute. It was so large and grew so fast that they outgrew their building. They outgrew two, outgrew two sets of buildings. Um, I, I, I can't recall the numbers exactly, but they went from 12 faculty members to something like 200 faculty members. Students came from all over the world to study here. Um, and they, they did something like 400 free concerts a year out of Pittsburgh Music Institute. And it was integrated. There were black students and white students. But Richard, I have to ask you about the, the book, the, the cover photo. You have this Danny Norella band. Why did you choose them for the cover of the book? Well, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> the, the publisher chose those. I, I would have probably had something a little bit different, but I didn't really have a say in that. Uh, there was a lot of bands like that. These, uh, for lack of a better term, a pickup band, and they would play constantly and professionally and perform formally. So you had a lot of these types of bands too in neighborhoods that were always competing against each other as well. So that was that was one of the one of the groups that they had selected. No, you mentioned briefly some of the different musicians, but we ought to we ought to just go down the list and talk about some of the the most famous. Like who who was very famous from Pittsburgh and and moved on and and hit the road and made it nationally. Well, the, the most famous, and I think Karen would agree, was Billy Strayhorn, who worked for uh, Duke Ellington. Then you had uh, Billy Eckstein, Roy Brown. Stanley Turrentine, the saxophonist, George Benson, Walt Harper, Earl Father Hines. Uh, you had Phyllis Hyman, uh, Ahmed Jamal, who was in his probably late 80s, early 90s, who's still performing. Um, then you had sing, you had other musicians who were not as famous, but were famous in the jazz community, like Danny Kahn. And then you had singers like Dakota Staten. And um, uh, I'm trying to think who else. I have my little cheat sheet here. Um, well, Art Blakey, for example. Now, Art Blakey, he had formed the Jazz Messengers, and so many, he had had like 30 or 40 musicians over the years come through the Jazz Messengers that were famous, not from Pittsburgh necessarily, but a lot of them were just famous. Then you had Kenny Clark, who grew up in the Hill District and was a drummer. Uh, so um, those are just some of the famous ones. Now, you also had a guy like Dodo Marmorosa. Again, 
not well known nationally, but people who knew him, knew his piano style, respected him greatly. But he kind of like withdrew from the scene after a while. But he was his music is is great to listen to. I mean, he was top flight. And Joe Negri, and, who 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 made it on uh, the Mister Rogers show. Oh yeah, handyman Negri, Joe Negri, the guitarist. Yeah, he he's still around and uh, a wonderful guitar player. Uh, he really had, had branched out into a lot of different areas, but jazz was the was his first love. He told us a story that he was good friends with George Benson. And when the Crawford Girl number two was still around and they were younger men, him and George went up to the Crawford Girl to see Gus Greenlee and see some of the other musicians perform. And when he got in, he goes, oh boy, he says, people are gonna be swarming all over George. I mean, he's a local guy. Except when he got in, everybody goes, hey, there's Joe Negri, hey Joe. <laughs> he wanted to talk to Joe Negri, not George Benson. So it was kind of. It, he said it was kind of funny because he says, I didn't think I was that popular. Well, talk a little bit more about Billy Strayhorn. Uh, he he played with Duke Ellington? Yes. He, uh, like I said, he was introduced through a, a relative of Gus Greenlee's, and he, he came uh, to the Warner Theater after one of the Ellington performances and impressed him, and he hired him. Now, I don't know if this is true story, or if it's a legend. But he said, well, what am I gonna do? And he says, well, just come to New York. Uh, come to my, my apartment in Harlem. He says, well, how do I get there? He says, well, you just take the A train. And supposedly Strayhorn's song, the A train, was based on the directions that Ellington gave him how to get to his apartment in New York up mm -hmm. in Harlem. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. It's a great, it sounds like a great story. But him and, he and Strayhorn went on for 30, almost 30 years collaborating on, on, on wonderful tunes and wonderful songs. And, you know, Satin Doll, uh, Chelsea Bridge, and of course, the A-Train. I mean, just, it's just, but the, the thing that I think bothered a lot of people was that Ellington took too much credit. He was given credit, more credit than was due him for some of the arrangements and the songs and the uh, uh, the lyrics. A lot of that was really Strayhorn. He was immensely talented. I mean, he's, he was a professional by the time he got to high school. He was writing he was writing a thing called Fantastic Rhythm for a school uh, ensemble, which ended up being played all over Pittsburgh's high schools because it was so good. I mean, it was that professional. He was just an amazing, amazing talent. And Earl Garner? Earl Earl Gardner, the man with 40 fingers. Earl Gardner couldn't read a lick of music. He could sit down, listen to a song, and then play it. And he could sign autographs with both hands at the same time. And he could just sit, it was amazing. There was one incident where he went to Russia on a concert tour, and he heard this classical piece of music played at, a, at another event, and he came right back to his apartment, sat down in uh, or his hotel, and came back and played it note for note, just from memory. That's how talented the guy was. He was he was just absolutely amazing. And his manager, Martha Glasser, was livid when Ken Burns did his documentary series on jazz and, and excluded Earl Gardner from the 
from the series, saying that he didn't really offer anything in the jazz world. And if you read some of the documentation uh, with Glasser and uh, the Ken Burns production company, she is very bitter and refused to let them use any of his music in the documentary. She felt he really should have been included in that as one of the great jazz artists of the century. Karen, do you have a favorite on this list? Uh, you know, I wanted to make a comment about the number of well-known, internationally known artists. As we all know, the Newport Jazz Festival is the premier jazz festival for showcasing artists. And in 1959, uh, it, it was uh, on fire with Pittsburgh musicians. Um, they, they have a Friday program and a Saturday program and a Sunday program. And the Friday program was the Majamal Trio, of course, Pittsburgher, and Roy Eldridge on trumpet and Dakota Staten and Ray Brown, all Pittsburghers. The headliners for Saturday were Earl Gardner and the Duke Ellington Band with playing Billy Strayhorn's arrangements. And then on Sunday was the Art Blakey and his Jazz Messengers. So in 1959, almost every performance was by a Pittsburgher. So we, we looked at the, I looked at the Newport Jazz Festival program from that year and I, I was astounded that every performance had at least one person from Pittsburgh. Do you have a favorite? Uh, I'm a Duke Ellington fan. I'm a Duke Ellington fan. I, it, it, to me, that is just swing music at its finest. Well, let's go now start going down the list again. Lena Horn from Pittsburgh. Lena, well, they she wasn't here very long, but you know they wanted to do to adopt, to adopt her and include her in as a Pittsburgher. Uh, she was only here for four years. She was married, had her, had some children here. And then before she left town, but you know, she was just amazing. Her father was, a, and I use this term politely, a business partner of Bookie Gus, Gus Greenlee. He was kind of a gangster type. Uh, and uh, she, he helped her career, but she uh, eventually left. But yeah, they, they consider her part of the jazz, jazz community here in Pittsburgh even though she was here a very short period of time. Now, Richard, a little earlier in the program, you mentioned Mary Lou Williams. Who was she? Yeah, Mary Lou Williams was another one of those who came up from the South, the great uh, black migration from the South. Uh, she was born in Georgia, came here as a very young child. And when she was two or three, she could sit down at the piano and start pecking out tunes. And everybody was, wow, you know, where did, where is this coming from? And as she grew older, she was uh, booked to play in a lot of uh, a lot of parties, uh, cocktail parties for many black, uh, many rich white Pittsburghers. And she would come, for instance, for the melons. She played a lot for the melons who would who would pay her to come to their to their parties. Um, and she did that a lot. And then she went out on tour uh, with some bands, and then you know slowly worked her way up. But she was another one of those uh, prodigies. That's the only thing I, word I can think. And, and in fact, if you went to the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, there is a whole section on jazz, and there's a rec recreation of, uh, of her piano and a wax figure of her uh, in the a place that's supposed to be the Crawford Grill. So, you know, it's she's still still remembered fondly here. Billy Eckstein. <laughs> Boy, Billy Eckstein, he had a voice uh, that you just couldn't believe. I mean, he was so popular. And uh, he, with black and white audiences, and he, uh, his career took a little bit of a dive. There was a photograph in a national magazine 
in which uh, there was a white girl swooning near him and, you know, almost touching. And that, for some reason, touched off a bit of racism. And his career kind of declined a little bit after that. So, uh, again, this whole thing of racism in the jazz industry keeps popping up. And um, it's a shame that had had to be that way. How many people are of these uh, from the era are still around who you were able to talk to for this book? Very few. Uh, Frank Cunamundo was uh, one. He's still around teaching, playing, and he's well into his 90s. Joe Negri is well into his 90s. Then there was another guy named Don Aliquo Jr., who was a great saxophone player. He uh, wasn't from Pittsburgh, but he spent most of his adult life in Pittsburgh and taught school, taught high school. So uh, there may be one or two others, but most of our interviews came from oral histories that are on deposit at the Carnegie Library and at the Archive Service Center at the University of Pittsburgh. There's the uh, African American Jazz Preservation Society, which has a whole bunch of uh, recordings and transcripts of interviews with a lot of the people from that period, which is really, a, and, and also the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild, who, which, which holds concerts, uh, had been holding concerts until the pandemic, has uh, tons of oral histories uh, on video that that were done by people who played in Pittsburgh or who came to Pittsburgh to play. Richard, I asked Karen who her favorite was. Uh, who's your favorite? I know it's hard to pick one favorite. But... It is. My favorite would be Omar Jamal. I, I love to listen to his music. It is so sweet, so smooth. What's his instrument? Uh, I'm sorry? What's his instrument? Piano. He's a pianist, and uh, his uh, he uh, another one of those kids that just uh, just picked it up. He, there was one incident at the Black Musicians Club. He was um, Karen. Do you remember who this player was that that got yeah, mad Stan, at him? Stan Getz. Stan Getz. Oh, Stan Getz. Ahmad Jamal was playing uh, at the club and Stan Getz came in after a gig and wanted to sit in. And he said, I like to sit in with that kid over there. And so they were asking about Jamal. Jamal said, uh, what uh, key do you want to play? And then Getz told him, and I guess, uh, Jamal was a little bit miffed being called kid referred to as kid all the time by Getz. And I guess he just burned Getz at the piano and Getz couldn't keep up with him. And finally Getz just quit and walked out of the club because <laughs> he couldn't co compete with him. And you said, you said Ahmed Javal is still playing? Oh, yeah. He's, last time I looked, I think he was 88, 89, and I looked at his concert schedule. He still had concerts. Uh, I don't know if he went through with them in 2020 because of the pandemic and what he's doing this year. But, yeah, he still performs. Still er performs. Earl Father Hines. Another uh, one of the Pittsburgh piano prodigies played uh, with uh, Faye Marble. And, uh, you know, he just took, took his music all all over the world he was he was that good i don't know where the where the the ability from these people came i mean it was amazing just the way they they adapted to the piano and any even other artists to other instruments just just the way they took it up it just makes me envious i wish i knew how they did it why was he called father i'm sorry why was he called father uh because he was when he was doing that he was very young and he was very small 
And, you know, he wasn't a physically tall guy. And they used to, it was kind of a joke. They called him father when he was just a kid. And you mentioned George Benson, guitar? George Benson, yeah. He started playing for nickels and dimes on a, on a guitar that he built. And then his stepfather built him an electric guitar. And then he, well, some people, some promoters heard him and start, had him playing in these clubs at like 12 and 13 years old when those laws in those days said you couldn't have an adolescent like that in a club where there was liquor and questionable women and things like that. And the club got raided and he almost uh, ended up in reform school. Matter of fact, he did end up in reform school later, but for something totally different. Karen, who on this list should be more famous? I'm an instrumentalist, so I, I mostly followed the instruments, but for the first time I heard Dakota Staten, I'd never heard her sing before, a native Pittsburgher, and I was just stunned by her voice and her diction and her phrasing. I, I think she's probably the person from Pittsburgh who received the least amount of attention and had a great deal of talent. Do you play an instrument? I'm a clarinet player. So I'm a clarinet sax. I also play piano. Do you play jazz? Sometimes. Sometimes. Out in public? Sometimes. <laughs> I have a, um, I play in two, I play in a community band that plays, sometimes plays some jazz arrangements. Um, at my church band, I have a band, instrumental band at church and we do jazz arrangements there. We've also done some Dixieland stuff there. So I play clarinet when I play Dixieland. So now, you mentioned the church. You mentioned that earlier, the music in the church. Was there much overlap between church music and the jazz music? Did they influence each other? Yes, they did. There was a great deal of influence. Um, somebody had a quote about the jazz musicians that played on Friday night and heard the certain rhythmic structure went to the, church, the Baptist church on Sunday morning and had the exact same rhythmic structure. So, yes, there was overlap. Um, some of jazz, some of the format of jazz was also copied from the church. Um, the black churches had a lot of call and response and jazz is based on call and response. That's what improv is based on. So yes, there is a lot of overlap. The melodies and the harmonies are often based on church music. Richard, who on the list should be more famous or not well, on the list? Let's see. That's a hard question to answer because there was, I think Dodo Momorosa, if he hadn't withdrawn from from public like he did, I think he would have been more well-known. Also, Sonny Clark, another guy from outside mm -hmm. of Pittsburgh who who uh, died at 31 of a heroin overdose. So yeah, those, guys, those two guys, I think, could have been a lot more famous. Now, Dodo was playing with uh, a big band in Philadelphia when he was beaten senseless. And he uh, was in a coma for a while. And after he recovered, he kind of, he was never the same. He kind of withdrew and he didn't do a lot of recording and didn't do a lot of playing. And then Sonny Clark, uh, he had a great, great uh, a, a resume of music, but at 31, he dies. He could have been much more famous than he was. Now you write in your book, the golden era of jazz ended in Pittsburgh in 1956, as Mayor David Lawrence uh, wielded a crowbar in the Lower Hill District, why did that spell the end of the jazz era? Most of the clubs 
that were that were popular and famous were in the lower part of the hill district and they were destroyed they were they got hit by the wrecking ball now yes it's true the lower hill district was a big slope white pittsburgh wanted was concerned about decline of property values in the downtown edgar kaufman of kaufman's department store loved the pittsburgh symphony and he wanted a place where an arena that the roof would open that they could hold concerts year-round. And the way to do that was to get rid of the Lower Hill District. The black community protested, but David Lawrence was not going to let anything stand in the way of the Renaissance. He didn't. He disregarded their complaints and just went ahead and started tearing buildings down. And with that, a large part of the black community died. The Hill District you have to remember, it was like a city within a city. And that's another thing about the segregation. You know, blacks couldn't shop downtown, so they had all their stores, pharmacies, doctors' offices, lawyers, every business that they white Pittsburgh had, black Pittsburgh had, but it was in the Hill District. And Renaissance destroyed it. And to that to this day, we're still talking about how we're going to renovate the Lower Hill District. Where did the people go? They went to uh, other sections of Pittsburgh and into the suburbs. Uh, one one planner said, we just created another slum. We shut down and tore down the uh, lower hill and we sent the residents to Homewood Brushton, which became another slum. So that's where a lot of, now you have to remember the lower hill district also had a lot of white people. So they moved out into the suburbs like Penn Hills and the South Hills in this region and that's where they went to so it was a, it was a very sad point especially sad because city officials just ignored pleas and the concerns that the black community had at the time so jazz clubs didn't pop up in other parts of the city uh no actually no uh, and what also hurt they renovated east liberty east liberty was the third largest commercial district in Pennsylvania behind Philadelphia and the city of Pittsburgh. And uh, I was surprised to find that out. And they went in and they, they tore out part of East Liberty to put some new roads and highways in. And with that, a lot of those clubs disappeared that the mob had run. And um, it was unfortunate because you could still go there after the Hill District, but then when they started doing messing with these liberty, then you know they lost that section too. So today there isn't that much jazz in Pittsburgh. There isn't that much jazz clubs in Pittsburgh. Wouldn't be for the Manchester Craftsman Guild. Uh, it's very difficult. Very difficult. Well, if, so if, I want to ask each of you: if someone is watching this and they've never really paid a whole lot of attention to jazz, how should they start? I would watch the documentary that's been on public television. We knew what we had, the greatest story never told. I think that documentary, and there's another one called Wiley Avenue Days, which is also a PBS production. I think that's a very good start. And then go to the Carnegie Library and just look at the number of books they have on jazz and start reading. I think that's a pretty good exposure. And Karen, your suggestions? I agree with all those things for, for a beginner jazz uh, aficionado, someone who's just starting out. Um, I, I looked at all of the city, not all, but most of the city photographer pictures that are online through um, Pitt History Archives. And a lot of 
the information that you see in these pictures, there were pictures of the clubs, there were pictures of the lower hill, lots of infrastructure pictures, but that told the story of the growth and development of the Hill District before and after the Pittsburgh Renaissance. So when I looked at those, I, I gained a greater understanding of how the Hill District developed, how immigration affected the residents of the Hill, how it grew. There are lots of pictures about, of the clubs, the shops, the pharmacies, um, people on the street. So that lent a little bit of depth to the study of how the Hill District developed and how jazz developed in the Hill District. Even though they're just pictures, you, you get a lot from the pictures. Karen, this is your first book? Correct. What do you think? Well, I think that we could have probably doubled the size. There was so much information. We, we had to really um, whittle down the information to get it within the number of words that we had agreed to in the contract. And Richard, you've been on this program a couple of times before. Uh, you have another book in the works? Uh, well, Karen, uh, she could tell you about our, we, we decided early on in this book, the research, that there's a second book. And Karen, I think she mentioned earlier that she's uh, doing, uh, she's thinking about a proposal on the book of other clubs. We talked to uh, some people who still uh, have photographs and, and have played the clubs and are still alive. It's for me personally, I've been working on a book for a while about McCarthyism in Pittsburgh. And uh, it seems like I never, it's been 10 years and I'm still working on it, but there's a very good story there and I'm just trying to get it finished. Our guests today have been Richard Gazarek and Karen Anthony Cole, and they are the authors of this book, A History of Pittsburgh Jazz, Swinging in the Steel City. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation, Brian. Good to see you again. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.